I'm Brent Grinna, and welcome to The Raise Podcast. We're talking to innovative advancement leaders who aren't satisfied with the status quo. Fundraising is in flux. Revenue's up, but donor counts are dropping. Phonathons are struggling and mass marketing isn't moving the needle. And our largest donors are increasingly feeling tapped out and challenging us to identify the next generation of supporters. But advancement isn't going extinct. It's being reinvented. That's why we're introducing the Raise podcast hosted by me, Brent Grinna, CEO of Evertrue. Join us as we push the boundaries to ensure future generations can benefit from access to education. On today's show, I'm thrilled to welcome Cornell University's Keith Hannon, aka the original digital gift officer. We've collaborated with Keith as a friend, customer, and content partner for over five years, and it was super fun to reflect on how his journey has evolved from literally being the man behind the at Cornell alumni social handles to recently rejoining Cornell as a major gift officer for the athletics department. And we break down a few of the digital tricks Keith has up his sleeves as he strives to personalize the major donor experience and bring good vibes from Ithaca no matter where his travels take him. I hope you enjoy the conversation with Keith. Here we go. Coming in live from Evertrue headquarters today with my guest, Keith Hannon, who is an Associate Director of Alumni Affairs and Development with the Cornell University Athletics Program. Keith has been a longtime friend and supporter of Evertrue's, uh, of mine personally, uh, and he's also a podcast listener. He's been listening to the Rays podcast. So before we started, I asked him for some feedback, and he said he really likes it when we keep the intros of the guests 90 seconds or less. So Keith, welcome to the show. You've now got 90 seconds to tell us who you are and how you ended up working in advancement at Cornell University. Yeah, I give you that feedback, then there's no way I'm going to stick to it. That's, All right, that's okay. That's the beauty of this business. Uh, so thank you for, for inviting me, first of all. It's been a real pleasure to be connected to Evertrue from your inception and watch you grow. I think your company is growing and impressing at a much faster rate than my career. So congrats, <laughs> congrats on that. Uh, so how did I get into advancement? Uh, well, you know, like everybody else, uh, I certainly didn't go to school for it. Uh, I was in California. I went to California right after graduating Ithaca College to get involved in the entertainment industry. And then when it came time to settle down and have a family, decided to come back to upstate New York. And Can we just talk about the entertainment industry for a second? Because not everybody <laughs> starts there before they become a gift yeah. officer. So mm -hmm. when you say you're in the entertainment industry in California, does that mean you have some like old Keith Hannon headshots, like glamour shots or that sort of thing? I absolutely have headshots that were taken when I was 23. So we're going to try to get those and include them in the show notes. We'll see if Keith reveals them. Did you have an, <laughs> did you have an agent? What was, what was the scene? Uh, no, I, I didn't really get that far. I've, I've always been a little stubborn in that way where it's like, I don't need anyone doing my talking for me. Uh, so I got the headshots. I had somebody, a good friend that I uh, worked with at Nickelodeon that was much older than me, had worked in the business a long time, that was trying to help me as kind of being that agent manager type. Uh, good guy, somebody I trusted and collaborated with. But no, I never never really had a hired gun out there. Did, did, you, uh, did you do auditions? Do you have any memorable uh, uh, auditions? I did, I did some or? auditions. I did one of the most random things. I mean, so I was... I was trying to do uh, television and film writing while also dabbling in stand-up comedy. So 
to get on the big stages like the comedy store and something boulevard i had to audition for that and it's really awkward to do comedy auditions because you get put in a room with about a hundred other people auditioning and three judges in front of you and you get about three to four minutes to impress them meanwhile your audience of 100 people are all other comics just hoping you fail so there's no laughter in the room whatsoever nobody's laughing if you get some smiles out of the judges that's all you can hope for uh, so i had to do a number of those and that was always really awkward one of the more random things i also auditioned for was to be the play-by-play -play guy for the touring madden video game tournaments okay so, like EA Sports would host tournaments in different cities and at the venue, you know, were people like calling the games. And I did that in college, so it felt like a really natural fit for me. I think the problem was I was more traditional broadcaster, you know, and they wanted somebody that was like edgy, had a hip hop type of vibe. And that just was not something I was bringing to the table at that point in my life. So does this mean you basically? that now. You basically invented esports. Is that what you're saying? Uh, no, I did not invent it, but I was trying to get in early. Yeah. yeah so this was like 2005. When you think about the uh, the, just reflecting quickly, and then we can get into the meat of your uh, your advancement career. But uh, lessons, skills that were developed during the uh, stand-up comedy uh, circuit and 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 broadcasting tryouts, et cetera, that you feel are relevant or maybe underappreciated or maybe you underappreciated uh, prior to, to being in your current role? Yeah, you know, I think what I'm finding in fundraising is fundraisers and advancement in general often puts, tries to put themselves in position to hear yes, right? And I think sometimes what we're finding, what data is showing, I think it, at least at Cornell and some other places is we're not always asking for as much as we could be because we think we're going to, we feel more comfortable that we're going to get the yes at the lower amount. And so I think hmm. my experience has brought me in touch quite often with no. <laughs> and, uh, and with that come kind of a thickening of the skin and I think you're far less afraid of hearing no, um, because no doesn't mean I'm not going to give. No could just be a bit of an ego blow or uncomfortable for the fundraiser, uh, but getting comfortable with discomfort, I think is really important uh, if you're gonna be on the front lines. And so, you know, between auditions and stand-up comedy, there's few things worse than telling what you think is a really good joke and hearing crickets uh, as everyone's looking back at you. And so those kind of experiences, uh, I'm pretty pretty experienced with, uh, with failure in that way. And so, you know, and when you're on the front lines, you have difficult conversations and you have to be kind of quick on your feet. So all of those things I think are really important uh, in my role and that's why you'll see advancement operations do you know hire consultants to do role playing things like that to try to get people to develop those skills and, and i think it's hard though i think it is hard to develop those skills a lot of those are, are instinctual and kind of natural feel sorts of things so 
Uh, but I certainly appreciate that that background that I've had where, uh, you know, I've, I've taken some bruises and and now I'm I'm stronger for it. So hopefully it, it continues to serve me well. Yeah, look, I think uh, on our entrepreneurial journey, no is a very common uh, expression that we hear from uh, from the beginning. And, and I feel like uh, maybe nuanced relative to the stand-up comedy auditions, but I think presenting to investors, for example, probably feels a lot similar to <clears throat> presenting to a, to a group of judges who, you know, are quickly, uh, you know, making an assessment. And, and so you went through that sort of early twenties, mid twenties, formative experience out there, decided to start a family, came back to Ithaca where you'd gone to college and um, Googled advancement jobs. I mean, what, what happened? How, how, how did you get uh, into your first role? Yeah, well, so there's not a, you know, when you when you live in Ithaca and you're thinking about employment, you know, there's no bigger employer than Cornell University. And so it, it seemed like a really uh, attractive option to, to be part of a, you know, an institution like this with so much history and so much prestige. Uh, you know, you just didn't know where you fit in. I mean, I had a communications background, a little bit of marketing background. Uh, so you know there's something there. Uh, I went to school for video production, so I did a lot of that. Uh, but it's tough, you know, you don't really know if it's going to be transferable. But lucky for me, uh, Cornell Alumni Affairs and Development was one of the, the thought leaders on injecting digital media, not into university communications, but on the alumni affairs side. So when I got to Ithaca, it happened that Cornell Alumni Affairs was looking for an online community manager. They wanted someone to manage and build online communities. Uh, Chris Marshall, who is the former vice president of Alumni Affairs and uh, now doing some work at Graduate and some other, I think he's starting his own um, initiative now as well. Uh, he brought in Andrew Gosen, who a lot of people know uh, from Princeton and basically let Andrew write a job description. And Andrew really had this vision of, uh, you know, realizing that we put so much time and money into regional alumni programs and events. Uh, why aren't we doing at least something similar in the online space where communities are gathering and need attention and need growth and stewardship and all those things and engagement. Uh, so those two really, uh, had a, a forward-thinking vision. And so Andrew was looking for someone to come in and manage these online communities, build up the social media communities of Cornellians, and also someone that can come in and, and do more video work that would engage alumni, especially live streaming, which when I got to Cornell in 2011, uh, the parts you needed to live stream, uh, you kids these days would not appreciate how hard it was to live stream in 2011. Which was not that long ago, but it was it was frustrating. It often broke. It wasn't reliable. Um, but we we did three live streamed events at Reunion 2011, and so uh, that was a big deal. So yeah, so I I got in because I, I had that communications background. My last job at LA, I was working for a startup company where I really started experimenting with social media as a marketing tool. You know, at that point it was still very social and not very intertwined with business and monetization. Uh, so it was just really kind of a playground. And so that experience 
positioned me for, for that Cornell job. And so you came in, it sounds like there was some thought around the structure of the role and general goals around online. Essentially, we've been doing offline alumni events and reunions forever. What's the digital version of that? How do we leverage new technologies to bring a stronger connection? And I, and I imagine, I mean, at least what we've seen in the sector, that there probably wasn't a real focus on monetization at the beginning, but I know that you've uh, evolved a lot uh, in, in sort of going from more content and marketing to then weaving that together with some, some live fundraising efforts that you all have done. And then we'll talk more about your day to day as a major gift officer, but tell me about that evolution of sort of just going from, you know, if you think about a funnel, right, building content and engagement at the top of the funnel, which was sort of phase one to then really starting to think about how to better understand individual donor engagement and preferences that could inform either annual giving or even direct major giving outreach. Yeah. So when I first arrived at Cornell, it was very much, let's make these communities bigger. Let's grow them. Uh, let's measure how many people are engaging with us week to week, month to month. We just wanted to see people paying attention to our content. Uh, I think we knew, uh, you know, one, one thing we understood real early on was nobody was on Facebook because Cornell was on Facebook, right? We were on Facebook because they're all on Facebook. And so we had to compete with the content that they were digesting across these social platforms that was often far more engaging than whatever alma mater is going to serve up as a reason to stay engaged. Uh, so we, you know, Again, going back to kind of the, the entertainment background, storyteller type thing, that was really big for me because I came in and just said, okay, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna treat this audience like they are people that just wanna be entertained. You know, they don't wanna be reminded of, you know, there's times for it, but they don't constantly wanna be reminded of how prestigious the university is and how they should wanna be connected to that. Uh, you know, so it was really much just reminding them of the good times, you know, videos of the places where everyone hung out and stuff like that, and just really, you know, made it a, a fun space and an engaging space and entertaining is, space. Is that difficult? I mean, without, uh, you know, commenting maybe too much on Cornell specifically, but I am curious when you think about the hallowed halls and the ivy on the buildings and the traditions, um, how do you think about injecting your own personality or view of entertainment and media inside a brand that has different guidelines and standards that may not be exactly, you know, Keith Hannon personified? So how do you walk that line and did you overstep it all along the way or, or was the, the team pretty supportive? Uh, the direct team and, and, and supervisor were always very supportive, never really had to run a whole lot of things by them. Now there were other people in the organization that were early on, especially kind of, you know, what is this guy doing? Why is he posting this stuff? I remember one of the first things I did was collaborate with MIT. And we did this fictional alumni tournament style bracket uh, where we took all these fictional Cornellians and put them against fictional MIT people. And these are people from books, movies, TV, people that identified as going to one of these schools and we had our respective alumni bases kind of vote and try to, you know, it, it was a, a, a mutually uh, beneficial 
activity that got both alumni bases engaged in a little online competition. So things like that, I think people were like, what is, what's this guy doing down there? You know, and so there was, there was some skepticism because, you know, yeah, what you said, you know, it was a, almost at that point, almost 150 year old institution, Ivy League, all these things. Uh, but I think, you know, what you have to do in those cases is present your vision internally and just say, you know, we're going to roll stuff out incrementally. And we believe that the results will prove themselves. And they did, you know, the, the fun, lighthearted, comedic content, people responded to it and they shared it and they loved it, you know? And, you know, I took a lot of time to really try to feel out what it meant to be a Cornellian. What were the, what were the aspects of that experience that really resonated with people? So there was a lot of homework to do with somebody that didn't go to Cornell. I went to college in the city of Ithaca, but the two hills are very different. <laughs> and so there, there was some homework done, uh, but I think the, the results started to, to prove out. And, you know, you can actually look up online, um, Adam Miller, uh, who's at Stanford, he and I at one of the case social media conferences did a, a joint presentation on uh, why it's okay to inject humor into your content strategy. And him coming from Stanford and me coming from Cornell, two universities that have a lot of prestige, uh, yeah, can show people examples of why why that stuff really hooks your audience. And again, I always remind people you're what you're competing against in the social space, especially now. I mean, it's only getting more crowded uh, in all these different spaces. And you know, three years ago, you would have been asking me about my uh, my strategy on platforms that aren't really even used right now. Uh, so <laughs> you know, it just changes so quickly. Uh, but the one thing that's always true is style and types of content that, that engage people. Well, I think it's look, look at offline events. Let's just take reunion as an example as being the quintessential alumni activity. Uh, there's a lot of laughing at reunions. You know, there's a lot of smiles. There's a lot of hugs. I mean, there's, it's not like it needs, you know, people are people. They want relationships with other people. They want to be entertained. They, they want educational content as well. But I do think you know, trying to just bring that same spirit of what makes a good offline event and inject that into your digital content is probably a pretty safe approach, even though it might feel risky um, to, to try to invoke, you know, laughter digitally when it's super common to do that at, at an event and nobody thinks twice about it. And, and I think one of the things that was interesting as we got to know you early on in that journey, sort of watching the evolution from really trying to go broad, build community, understand the platforms, create presences. But then along the way, you started realizing or started thinking about, okay, we're engaging a lot of these people. Who are they? You know, where are they in their lives? How are they connected to us philanthropically or not? And it seemed like that was really a an inflection point in your career and one that uh, for sure, we've tried to socialize throughout the industry. In many ways, I consider you the original digital gift officer, the ODGO, if you will. Um, and and I need an album. Pardon? I need an album. Absolutely. Well, you've already got the headshot, so you're good there. But uh, as you think about kind of making that shift from content creator to really starting to qualify prospects and start to surface leads in a way that had never been done before at Cornell and probably uh, really uh, hadn't been done within the advancement sector. Were there any kind of aha moments that led you there? Because it's not, 
all that common to meet social media content creators who really start to think more like prospect researchers or major gift officers? Yeah, I think how it all happened was just the realization after a while that while I felt we were doing really good work in organizing and engaging alumni in these online communities, it was very clear to me that I wouldn't be doing my job to the best of my ability if I didn't try to find a way to support the fundraising pipeline. Now, I went to a conference uh, in just five or six months after I started at Cornell. It was a digital conference uh, focused on communications and digital media and social media and all that fun stuff. And I was struck by a number of people presenting at the conference who were making the argument that we as community managers should not feel the pressure to answer the fundraisers or to people in development who felt that you know social media should have an ROI. Uh, it's not ROI, they would say it's return on engagement, it's, it's friend raising, not fundraising. And I guess my instinct at that moment was, well, that seems like we're just letting ourselves off the hook so that we can continue to enjoy our time in these playgrounds. And Cornell, especially, you know, knowing that raising money was such a big piece of our division, and I knew there were people skeptical internally of our ability to support that. And so it was a matter of just looking and thinking about the ways in which social media can, can at least begin to move the needle a little bit. And the most obvious thing that stuck out to me was the fact that we were manually approving uh, people coming into our alumni LinkedIn group. And so here I am, every week I'm approving two, 250 people a week coming into the LinkedIn group, looking at them, verifying they have a Cornell affiliation, and then allowing them into the group. And it probably took longer than it should have, but I, I went to, to my boss and I said, you know, I'm looking at someone's job title, their company, their company size. Uh, you can essentially gauge their age from the year that they graduated. I said, I'm not in fundraising. I'm not in prospect research. Basically, anyone that says they're a lawyer is rich to me. I said, so I don't know exactly, but I have to imagine I'm seeing some pretty important indicators here that are relevant to our division. And, you know, that's when Andrew was like, yeah, you need to sit down with prospect research and talk about this. And so essentially what they did is give me a, a crash course on prospect research and wealth indicators. And we came up with these keywords for what to look at in a LinkedIn profile that would indicate wealth. And then they gave me the keys to kind of the back end of our, of our database where I could nominate people for tracking. Uh, and so that was great because, you know, when I nominate people, it's my name on that nomination. The social media guy is now serving up people for major gift tracking. And I was doing so at about a, a 30 to 30 percent acceptance rate. So about a, you know, a third of the people I nominated were 
getting qualified at major gifts. And, you know, I was nominating hundreds of people over, you know, over a, over a, a three-year stretch, I probably nominated over 400 people. So, uh, Any idea I, what, what kind of pipeline was generated among that 400? I mean, when you think about, you know, any significant gifts that definitely emerged or there's probably proposals in flight even today that trace back to that time, any sense or too, too hard to say right now? Yeah, I don't know because at that point, it was basically that's where I got out of the picture. Right. Uh, I nominated and, you know, it wasn't like gift officers would call me up and say, hey, you nominated this person. What do you know right. about them? Because once I nominated them, prospect research did the more extensive homework and then basically put them in the different portfolios. So, I, I mean, every so often uh, after that point, um, even when I would, in the time I was gone in between these jobs at Cornell, I'd get an occasional email with, from somebody that would say, Hey, you know, I think you nominated this person like four years ago. I just closed a major gift. Just thought you'd like to know. I'm like, Oh, that's cool. So I'm glad, glad the, the circle was, was complete there. So it, yeah, it has happened. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I don't know at what rate, you know, and I think that's what kind of, fueled my desire to start to move towards the front lines because I realized that, yes, it was great to nominate, but then it was out of my hands. And some of these people, I saw a great opportunity to have this whole digital engagement strategy for them as a donor. But I knew the gift officer that they were getting assigned to would not approach it in that way. Yeah. So that's basically, uh, I mean, going back to the offline to online uh, sort of event management versus digital community management, you were sort of like the guy at the digital at the digital party sitting there welcoming people in. And just like fundraisers have been doing for, de for decades offline, basically trying to make assessments whether there's, you know, more attention warranted given the scarce resource of time that we have to prioritize our, our true philanthropic uh, fundraising efforts. And so um, I, I think, I mean, it sounds like you were basically building your own funnel, right? Let's engage these people. Let's welcome them into the community. Let's then try to do some kind of back of the envelope, major gift qualification. Let's refer them to major gifts. <laughs> some of those folks are getting added to portfolio, 30% acceptance rate. Even if of those 400, you know, 40 resulted in proposals or gifts at the $25,000 level, let's say that's a million dollars in return on investment, okay, minus your, your time and, and, and salary, et cetera. That's a lot more compelling than an arbitrary return on engagement, uh, you know, friend raising point of view. Um, but it sounds like in spite of that momentum, it's still tricky to to really sort of see the full funnel and to get the full picture. I know that there have been good strides made and technology is starting to help in that regard. And, and we're definitely excited about that topic. But um, in spite of some of those challenges in sort of seeing things completely through on your own, it sounds like there was still a great validation of that work and it's helped shape your interest into moving eventually into, into the front line. Yeah. And you know, it makes me think of an interaction I had at a conference uh, several years ago where I was sharing some content examples and, you know, there were things where, uh, you know, pictures of campus covered in snow and these poor students trying to get up a gigantic hill into this headwind. And, 
you know, I had a, a, one of the attendees kind of raise her hand and said, you know, but isn't, he said, isn't posting pictures about weather, isn't that just going after cheap likes? And I, I got a little aggravated, not only because of my, uh, my, my ego as, a, as an artist and content producer, but because, you know, I, I said to him like, well, why is any like cheap, right? A like is a person. It's a, it's a, it's a member of your constituency raising their hand saying, I, that resonates with me. I said, so for everyone that does that, I can look at those hundred likes and I can look at are any of these people of importance to me as somebody working in advancement or any of these people from households that are currently tracked and their gift officer needs to know the kind of content they're engaging with. So no, I don't believe in a cheap like. I didn't then and I don't now. And you know, you still need that content strategy or you don't get these leads. So when you talk about fundraising or fundraising, uh, I, I think they're, they're tied together. Like you need a good content strategy. You can't measure an empty room. And so that's still really important. It's just don't stop at the like. Don't report the like to your bosses and say, hey, we got 100 likes this week. But no, it's like, who are those 100 likes? Who right. are those people? Got 100 likes. 10 of them have interesting capacity ratings. Right. Six are not assigned. We got them assigned. Three visits were had. Two proposals. And $100,000 of revenue was generated from those 100 likes. Right. I mean, is Cornell or Brown, your alma mater, are we gonna throw a party in New York City and not have people sign in, right? We wouldn't do that. We get the, we get the RSP list, and the first thing we do before the event is we send that list and say, hey, uh, IGOs, your people are coming to our party, just thought you'd like to know. Right. So we're always paying attention to that stuff, and there's no reason we shouldn't be doing it right. in our digital communities or our online events. The, well. the, the difference is our digital parties are way bigger and they cost way less. Exactly. But we, but we have not historically thought about them as strategically as the event list. Uh, and, you know, that's obviously starting to change. I mean, technology is a part of it, but it's more having the strategy, having new roles as your role has evolved, even focused on, on thinking about those, uh, you know, what we view to be very logical tactics as being just a core part of advancement strategy. We can't have thinking about digital communities as a way to, you know, identify prospects, whether it's volunteer prospects, annual giving prospects, major gift prospects, that shouldn't continue to feel like a new thing for all that much longer. And I think there's more and more evidence that it really does work, but it still seems like um, it can be a bit of an uphill battle in, in getting the, the org charts and the job descriptions adjusted to reflect that new reality. Yeah, and I think you asked kind of how did I end up taking the next step? And for me, it, it became exactly that. It was, okay, we've served up leads. Do we feel like those leads are, you know, are they being fully capitalized on? And so I proposed to, to our, I think it was the person running the annual fund at the time, or leadership gifts at the time, and to my supervisor that, hey, what about giving me a portfolio? And just give me dead ends, give me, give me the people that get dropped from portfolios. I don't care who you give me, just give me people. And let me just work it in the digital space because we had shown successes 
where I assisted other giving officers in starting relationships on digital and moving those into offline. You know, people who said, oh, this person doesn't call me back. We get them talking on Twitter or on Facebook, on LinkedIn. I share that with a gift officer and that gives them kind of a, uh, the ice is then broken and they start to learn more about where their prospect wants to communicate instead of just assuming that, you know, busy, you know, I think that was one of the things that I, I always used to kind of make me laugh is I would be told that high wealth individuals don't use social media, right? I said, well, what's one thing that successful wealthy people typically don't have an abundance of it's time. So, you know, maybe they would prefer a little digital exchange versus your request for an hour over a cup of coffee. So, you know, they're walking around with a computer in their pocket, you know, whether you're 85 or 25, at this point you have a smartphone, right? And so let's not forget that. Uh, so I got the, I got the green light to have a portfolio and um, uh, I had some early successes with kind of some digital solicitation, but unfortunately I didn't get to work it very long before I, I hopped to a new position. Uh, but now that I'm back at Cornell and working in major gifts, I am expected to be on the road a lot, but I'm really excited because, you know, I'm now nine months in and there's already a number of examples of where I've been able to use that digital experience to not only engage alumni of specific sports teams, but use those content strategies that I use for the broader alumni community, but boil it down to my portfolio. And so, you know, we always have strategies for our donors. We move them through stages. Everyone has been through that. Uh, but now what I'm trying to do is connect a content strategy to that, to that donor strategy and say, you know, here's what has to happen with this person or this family when I can't meet with them, which is 99% yeah. of the time, right? Yeah. You know, we, I, can't, I can't be in St. Louis seven times a year. You know, if I'm there once, that's a lot, you know, that kind of thing. So how can we uh, kind of shrink that distance between campus and them, which is something I wrote about on the Evertrue blog, Chief Plug, uh, <laughs> and we will link to that. Keith wrote a great <laughs> post called, called The Illusion of Local on our blog. And, uh, and I do want to touch on some of those themes. I think you're, you know, there aren't too many people. You were literally the guy behind at Cornell alumni on Twitter, mm -hmm. at Cornell alumni Facebook, LinkedIn, trying to engage tens of thousands of people via these mediums. Mm -hmm. And you're now trying to engage one person across the table from you in a major gift role and a couple hundred people, let's say, in your portfolio. Um, I don't know the exact numbers. That's about right. But what has it been like to go from, how do I leverage content and storytelling to reach tens of thousands of people to how do I leverage content and storytelling to make the experience better for this one person? And do you have any examples so far that maybe um, worked really well or haven't worked that others can learn from? Any uh, cheap tricks, if you will, that um, that maybe uh, are reflective of how you see the role of the gift officer uh, evolving so that instead of there being one or two digital gift officers on a team, every gift officer is you know more comfortable and more fluent in leveraging digital and content to create a great donor experience. 
Yeah. So on the major gift front, you know, I feel like I'm still much more of a listener than I am a preacher. So I just want to let everyone know that I, you know, nine months in the front lines of asking for a quarter million and higher gifts. Uh, I am far from having that figured out. Uh, but I do believe, and I, when I got back to Cornell after two and a half years away, I was really excited to see a focus on storytelling and fundraising. So I think that has caught up and we're all realizing that, at least in my opinion, uh, the research I've done, the reports I've run, I think we're looking at an increasingly, uh, lack of a better word, more fickle donor base as time goes on. I think you have older generations that saw philanthropy more as a sense of duty. And uh, uh, it's just what you do, you know, you give back to alma mater. Uh, I think starting with Gen X to Gen to millennials, to Gen Z or iGen, depending on your preferred classification, uh, I think the ball game is going to be very different moving forward, especially at the major gift level. Uh, now, I'm in a pretty good spot in athletics because that's a strong affinity that people have, as you know, Brent. Great people natural affinity, but also lots of opportunities for content and storytelling on a exactly. daily or weekly basis. Yeah. So sports kind of writes itself. It's just a matter of getting that content to this particular audience. you know. And so I'm trying to do things like, you know, quick little videos from a coach directly to someone in my portfolio, you know, hey, John, hey, Jane, uh, thanks so much for your support. Uh, Tell me about that. I mean, is there is there a specific coach you'd be comfortable naming that you've you've pitched on that idea? Um, yeah, again, you know, it's still early on in my relationship building just with the coaches alone. Uh, but, you know, one of my like I got an email yesterday. Uh, th this is great timing. I'm on the board of the Brown Football Association. And, and there was essentially a, an email that came from the president of the Brown Football Association to uh, our board from the coach on behalf of the coach, essentially trying to get approval for an investment in, in something for the players that had without question unanimous approval. People were super supportive. But uh, we got a, a PDF letter from the coach with a, you know, with his signature. And that was essentially the message from the coach. And I, and I, I got that and I thought, this would be such a great time to just have a 60 second video from the coach to the board. And, and, and I feel like that is just an example where we've been writing the letters on the letterhead and sending it for so long that it's, it's like muscle memory versus just getting the coach to drop us a little video. Um, and, and that coach, Brown's uh, coach, James Perry, is doing an incredible job leveraging Instagram and Facebook and other channels in a way that, that hasn't been done before. But I still feel like there's maybe some inertia on communications like that where we need the letter on the letterhead. Yeah, so, you know, when it comes to, to coaches and even some of your, your rock star faculty, you know, if there's one thing they can do, a lot of them, it's inspire, you know, verbally right? They're, they're good at talking. They're good at motivating. Uh, they're good at getting people excited. And that just doesn't come through in a letter. Uh, it can, you know, if, if, but a lot of those letters start to sound the same, right? Like, we're really excited for the, for the freshmen we brought in this year. Great recruiting class, you know, outstanding human beings. 
as well as athletes, you know, so, you know, it, it, it's hard to really feel the emotion in a PDF. Uh, no knock on PDFs, they're very valuable, but, you know, it's, it's not, not the only tool in the toolkit. Yeah. yeah. It's not how I chose to propose to my wife, you know, right. right. <laughs> so, um, you know, we do have some coaches that are really, uh, especially good at that stuff. And so we just kicked off a soccer season last weekend. So, uh, I put a little video together, a four minute video of the coach really gushing over his players, talking about his philosophy, the kind of team he's trying to build. And it was really just a really great uh, a summary from him and an emotional, heartfelt uh, reveal to the alumni about kind of how he's trying to build this program three years in. And, um, and so uh, I, tell I, me I, more about that. So, so you sure. went down to, you went to practice or you went to, to meet with the coach or, I mean, did you actually create the video? I did. Yeah. So I said, you know, Hey coach Smith, uh, you know, I know you're, you're heading to Michigan for a, a daunting. Like he was really big on, we want to play the best early on. So their first two games were Michigan and Michigan state, two nationally ranked teams. And, you know, that's a pretty big undertaking for an Ivy league soccer program. Sure. Uh, so I wanted to, you know, and, I, and I, I've met with him before and, you know, I left his off. I always leave his office fired up. So I know, you know, he can probably do the same for, for alumni. And so, yeah, I went out and said, Hey, let's go to the soccer field. Just stand out there at midfield. I'll, you know, we'll spend 10, 15 minutes talking on camera and I'll boil it You've down. Got an, an iPhone or you have a camera or would you, would you do? Uh, this, I, I have a, I do have a camera that, uh, you know, and it, I give props to Cornell Athletics because they knew who I was coming in. And the first thing they let me do was buy production equipment. Mm -hmm. They knew that was going to be a part of my strategy and they wanted that. Uh, so, yes, I had a, I had a, um, I can actually show it to you right here. There it is. This is it. This is all you need. But let me, uh, let me also say that uh, I mentioned it before. You do have a TV studio in your pocket, your iPhone or tablet or Android, whatever you prefer, it can do everything you need. You can shoot on it, you can edit on it, and you can turn it around quickly. Uh, there's even audio technologies come a long way. You can plug microphones into your smartphone and have handheld microphones or even wireless microphones. So uh, you don't need that to, to have a make a compelling video piece. Uh, so yeah, that's how we did it. I said I'd like to do this, and I've been trying to do it with more coaches. I got our football coach to uh, agree to doing essentially like a Monday morning press conference with me that I'm going to send out to alumni. You know, I was on the road. Love it. We met with some football alumni, and they're like, you know, uh, one thing that we just feel like we don't always know uh, really kind of the – the inside experience that the players are getting and stuff like that. And um, so I, you know, I kind of pitched it to the football program. So I've been on the road. Here's what I've heard. Be great to kind of offer a little intimate window into the program. And they said, okay. And so, so how do you, how do you, I mean that, but that to me sounds like a communications job. That's not a gift officer job. And yet at the same time, I think great, you know, effective gift officers. And like you said, verdict's still out and you've got a lot to learn and, and understand that. But ultimately it's trying to listen to and understand what your constituents want in their relationship from the alma mater and then try to deliver that. But 
I think it's sort of on the extreme to have a nice camera and to effectively be going back to your EA Sports broadcasting days uh, <laughs> with with the Cornell coaching staff. I didn't get that job, by the way. I, I know, but I did not get that job. Second time around here, and and it's just it's uh, you know, do, do you worry about stepping on toes, or I mean, how do you think about your role as sort of a uh, full funnel gift officer from content creation to qualification to being out in the field to doing proposals, solicitations, stewardship. Um, is that the way things are going to look in the future or, or is it just really unique to maybe the, the uh, culture and, and the state of affairs in Cornell athletics? Yeah, you know, I think you'll probably find most athletic shops that are not in the SEC, Big Ten, or ACC, or any of those big conferences, uh, probably operate on a shoestring budget. Uh, yet we know that these programs are incredibly important to the university because they build amazing people. And so, you know, when you're, you know, my office is right down the hall from, you know, the indoor rowing training rooms and other athletic facilities, right? So I'm constantly seeing students training in between classes, in between studying. Uh, you must be working out all the time, just being around. Actually, no, no, no. It's really pathetic how little I've worked out, despite the fact I'm 100 feet from a fitness center. I, it's, it hasn't been zero, but you can count on one hand how many times I've been in there in nine months, which is really atrocious. Uh, luckily, I've cut carbs significantly, so I'm kind of I'm, I'm trying to change the diet because I don't have time to work out. But um, but thank you for exposing that, Brent. I appreciate it. Very <laughs> but, open uh, conversation. Yeah, but anyway, so you know, you see, so where I'm going with that is, you know, you you see the effort being put in by the student athletes and the coaches, and you know, it's this person trying to raise the funds for the programs. You know, I think you you have to also apply yourself because like I said, I don't think it's, I don't think it's going to get easier for our profession moving forward. And we have to be storytellers. We have to look for ways to visualize impact, make people feel the impact of their philanthropy. There's so many places they can give their money uh, nowadays, you know, GoFundMe's, local organizations, their alma mater, you know, charities. There's, there's so many nonprofits. You look at the, research and it tells you how many new nonprofits have been created in the last yeah. 10, 15 years. Uh, so stepping on toes, yeah, so we have a sports information department, but they're pretty focused on just reporting the actual games themselves. I mean, they're, they're stretched really thin and, you know, they're great at what they do, but the fact of the matter is they don't have the bandwidth to serve the alumni community. They're just- How many teams do they have to support? Yeah, I mean, we got 30 plus programs right. they're trying to, and they yeah. got a team of five, right? So, I mean, they're trying to write articles, they're trying to produce videos and highlight reels. And so, I mean, to say, hey, you know, you need to serve our alumni community, that's, you can ask that. And they would love to do it. They've said that. They, they would love to be a big service to the alumni community. But, you know, until they, get permission to double their staff. Like I can't just sit around and say, well, it's not my job. You know, I have, I think I can do it. I'm gonna, and, it, and I think my mentality in, is 
you know, I I look at my portfolio and I say, you know, this this is my family, and I got to take care of my family, and I got to deliver the content to my family that they deserve based on the philanthropy they've offered or that I think they want to offer. And so going after those stories and making them feel good about what they're doing and feeling more connected, uh, that's all part of the job. And we've always saw that as part of the job. It's just the way we do that is changing. And to answer your other question, it's really dawned on me that it, it needs to become common practice that your major gifts, your leadership gifts, your principal gifts departments, they should all have at least one communications person producing these stories and getting them out to the portfolios. Because look, I, I mean, I'm lucky. I landed in this role and I have a background in this stuff. So it's easy for me to turn it around. Not everybody has that background. They could be a, amazing gift officers, but they might have no technical background in communications. So they should have somebody in their shop that can produce these stories for them to serve up. And I think that's where we're going. But I think, you know, you, you shared an example before we, yeah, before we started recording that I think is relevant. And it was really this idea that um, regardless of technical expertise of a gift officer, there are some really simple wins you can start to test on your own with your phone and just see what happens. And, and you, you shared an example about uh, getting a coach to offer not, not sort of a team-wide or alumni-based-wide message, but down to the individual constituent as a way to help you establish rapport and show that person in your family that you were focused on really trying to tailor uh, your uh, outreach to their, to their needs. And so could you share a little bit on, on that specific example? I forget where it was, but you can set up the visit uh, and just talk us through why maybe that becomes a little bit more common practice. Yeah. So it's actually the first visit I ever went on and I knew uh, that this particular alumnus, um, his father was a Cornell athlete. He was a Cornell athlete. Uh, he had given a lot of family uh, memorabilia and uh, Cornell athletic awards back to the program. And so I really wanted to, you know, have, have a really meaningful icebreaker uh, with this meeting. So all I did was I went over to our, our coach and I said, hey, I'm going to, to meet this family. Uh, I know you know them. Uh, can you give me 60 seconds on what this family has meant to your program? And he did it. It was great. I said, okay. I didn't edit it. I didn't give it title graphics or anything. Uh, just raw 60 to 90 seconds of the coach saying thank you, essentially, and reminding the donor of the different things that the family had supplied the program with, just to highlight that, you know, that stuff hanging around the office and the facilities, uh, that they see it every day, he thinks of them. And so when I sat down for breakfast with uh, the alumnus and, and his wife, you know, we talked for about 30 seconds. I said, hey, before we go any further, I just, somebody else wants to say hello. And I just played back the video on my phone. I just handed my phone to them and it was all queued up. They watched the video and they were really touched. They said, wow, that's so great. That, you know, and it was just from there, it was, you know, I don't know. I wasn't just fundraiser guy. You know, I, I'm someone who, who understood the connection between them and the program and what their family has done uh, for the program. 
And so and getting you know, a, a, it's reminiscent of just getting a smile from the judge at the comedy store is a good signal and uh, maybe yeah. get that smile early on and establish a little trust. And, and I think well, that's, you know, you, you, yeah, when I did stand up and I still do it on occasion, that's, that's what you want. If you can just get that good laugh, you know, less than 30 seconds in, it's like you relax as a performer and the audience is bought in a little bit and you can just kind of have fun from there. So yeah, I think the icebreaker is important and the, um, that's really simple technology that can really help you out there. And I think um, most coaches are, are willing to give you that time. Or and again, faculty, same thing. You can work for faculty. I don't want to keep this all in sports because it can work with faculty. It can work for anybody that you know your prospect has a close bond with on the campus. So I think as we start to conclude here, I, I do want to get your perspective uh, as you think about the next few years where do you feel, and this doesn't need to be Cornell specific, but you know, when you think about the advancement sector overall, you've got a great network. You've gotten to meet a lot of people at various conferences over the years in the case community. Where do you think the advancement industry is over-investing? And are there any areas that you feel like the sector is under-investing that if you could wave a magic wand and create new positions or shift budget from one area to another, um, in general, does anything stand out as being over-invested in or under-invested in? Yeah, so what comes to mind there is, you know, how much, and everyone has different budgets, but just how much we're probably spending on kind of those initial discovery visits or first visits with people where, you know, it, it's purely cultivation, right? You're, you're sending someone from Ithaca or Providence to Los Angeles for that you know, to meet with a handful of people. And for a lot of those people, it's going to be the first cup of coffee you have with them to learn about them. Uh, and that's just kind of a, a practice that's roundly accepted is, is what you do. And I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. You still need those cultivation visits. It's important you need to qualify people to ensure that they are who you think they are. Uh, to quote Denny Green, another football reference that a lot of people won't get. Uh, but you get it, Brent, and that's what I'm here for. Uh, but I think on the storytelling angle, uh, there's a lot you can do in anticipation for those first visits uh, to kind of prime the pump, so to speak. And you can see if these people you're about to visit have a digital footprint. What are the content they've already been engaging with? So, you know, while it can still be a discovery visit, you might be able to jump a couple stages ahead just by what you've learned about them in the digital space or what you engage them with uh, remotely before you have that face-to-face. -face. You know, I'm doing everything I can in my first handful of months here to ensure the people in my portfolio get some sort of a content touch from me so that the first time they hear from me as the new person in athletics, it isn't for that request for a meeting. It's like, oh, that's the guy that sent me the card, or that's the guy that shared that Instagram photo with me through email, or you know, that's the guy who sent me that video because uh, I missed reunion and you know he took some shots of the coach and the team party at reunion. Uh, so I think all of those things are really important. Uh, to show 
the, the person you're calling that it's not just, I want to get in front of you to give you the sales pitch. It's I'm starting to, I'm trying to create an experience for you as a member of my portfolio, as a member of my family. And this is the start of the journey. I want you to feel really intimately connected to your philanthropy. And to do that well, again, I think you need to consider investing in people in our shops who can help us with that storytelling. I mean, I have 200 households to manage here. It's really hard to be a film producer for 200 households, you know? Um, and luckily, based on stages, I'm only probably gonna solicit 20 to 30 of those households every year so I can prioritize. But I mean, boy, if I had someone in here who I could say, run over to that coach, get me 30 seconds from that coach, I'm hitting the road tomorrow, or get me those five coaches. I have six visits in three days here. I want six coaches on my phone ready to go. If somebody could help me do that, boy, that'd be a game changer. So if we could invest in those types of jobs, we talk about, we're starting to talk about storytelling now in advancement. But now we got to put some money into it. Yeah. You know, the only thing worse than not storytelling is telling bad stories. You know? <laughs> so having someone that can really step up and, you know, we have major gift associates, right? That is a roundly accepted position, the MGA or the PGA for principal gifts. Or, you know, we have these associates that help, you know, gift officers or portfolio management. I think we need the same thing for storytellers. When you think about your, uh, career so far and some of the the people you've really enjoyed working with either at Cornell or elsewhere uh, This is our opportunity for shout outs. You've already mentioned Andrew, Andrew Gosen and Chris Marshall uh, Are there other people who you feel have been good partners on this sort of learning journey that you've been on? Uh, yeah, I mean there's a there's been a couple of gift officers who early on in my career were really open-minded about um, accepting uh, a partnership uh, and people in prospect research. I'm not going to name everybody, but there's, you know, it takes some important partners uh, internally uh, to really help you. Uh, here in athletics, uh, it's been great. You know, uh, my supervisor is, is John Webster, and he hired me knowing that this is where my mind was. And he was, and he's the first to admit, you know, not a technology guy been doing his job as a, as a major gift fundraiser for athletics for 20 years. Uh, we have different styles, but he sees value in what I'm trying to do and what I can bring to kind of the future of the department. So, uh, and then, you know, my, my current colleagues are really under, they're, they're really buying into what I'm trying to do. Uh, we have a, an event manager, uh, Nadia Kichol, and she's really good at intertwining kind of what can be done digitally with the event she's planning. And then our leadership guy, Joe Rogan, he's been our giving day person and he's our phone-a-thon person. Uh, he's been doing that for three years now for athletics. And he totally gets it and understands, you know, even something like phone-a-thon, he and I talk about what could be a digital angle to making that more engaging for a donor. Do we live stream from inside the phone-a-thon room? We do little side interviews with student athletes that are on the phone. Uh, you know, so how do we, how do we capitalize on this stuff? And they're, they're all really open to it. They're all really, uh, you know, data focused too, you know, instead of just, you know, fundraising with our gut, how can we, how can we do, uh, do ourselves uh, a service by, you know, being smarter with our jobs and, 
you know, one of my favorite movies as a sports fan is Moneyball. So more and more, I'm lately I'm thinking, what is the Moneyball approach to fundraising? You know, and you watch that movie, and they all all the old scouts want home run hitters, and right. the, the young data nerd is like, we just want people who can get on base. So right. more and more, I'm asking myself, what? And I, I got to track down a, a Cornell mathematician and be like, hey. I want to do Moneyball for fundraising. What does that look like? You know, there must be data points that says this is a point in someone's life where they're most likely to make that major gift. Here are the different factors. So um, that's that's part of my grand vision for investment. Is, uh, is part of our well, grand vision too. So we're, yeah, we're aligned in that uh, for sure. <laughs> um, well, we'll wrap up here, Keith. It's been a privilege to to spend time with you today, get to know you a little bit better, and I guess I'd say. In parting thoughts, if you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about the advancement sector, what might it be? Well, I'll go back to where we started this conversation and just say that we all get a lot more comfortable with failure than with no. Uh, sometimes I think we get so uh, entrenched in status quo because it has worked. Even when we know deep down it's probably not working as well as it once did, but we're afraid to deviate. You know, I feel like I've been in meetings where you can just sense that people don't want to look like they came up with an idea that didn't deliver. And that's a really dangerous path. You know, I think you have to be willing to say, hey, yeah, that didn't work. So we'll move on to the next thing. But you can't not innovate. Uh, that's not going to work for the future of advancement. So I think we all need to just be okay from top down of ideas not working but you learn something from failure usually more than you do from success uh, so I, I hope everyone will will adapt that kind of mentality i've already had meetings with people where they threw out an idea for a, a certain fundraising initiative and basically the, the feedback from the supervisor was okay if you think that's the way to go so you can tell like people people don't want to put their name on things sometimes if it's not a sure thing and that's why we probably have stuck with direct mail for too long and now we've overcommitted to email probably a little bit uh, because we just think no one's going to say that that was a bad idea right because it's always been accepted so i think yeah getting more comfortable with pitching ideas and trying things that don't that might not work you know, hearing no, uh, you know, again, you learn things from that. So getting, getting comfortable with discomfort. I think it's a good thought, Keith. And for all your talk of uh, failing in comedy and not being afraid of failure in fundraising, I think your uh, willingness to try new things has pushed the industry in a positive new direction. I'm sure it's hard to feel that at times during the day to day, but the number of folks who've referenced, oh, you know, I heard what they're doing at Cornell, or have you seen what that guy Keith was doing at Cornell? Uh, it, it, it never ceases to amaze me. And so I would challenge you to continue to try to embrace that mentality while at the same time, uh, obviously needing to, you know, to succeed in, in your day to day. But it's been, it's been a privilege to get to know you and, and to have you as a thought partner um, on this journey. And we're really excited to see how you can continue to weave in uh, digital, online, offline, not just for um, small gifts, but even in a major gift context. And uh, I promise all the listeners will continue to to uh, share uh, Keith's musings and learnings on our blog. Uh, so without further ado, I'm going to sign off. Keith, thank you so much. And uh, we'll see you soon. All right. Thanks so much.
Cheers.